Hello. Hello. Welcome to Dragon Babies. I'm Welcome. Grace. <laughs> My hello is really aggressive this week. It's okay. Let's keep going. I was out of sync. And I'm Madeline. And this week we are discussing A Wind in the Door by Madeline Langle. Another Madeline. It's very exciting. Her name's not spelled the same as mine, though. Yes, it is. I just assumed because it yes, never is. Wow. It is. That's really Baby. cool. Check it out. Just like the cookie. Those are good cookies. Exactly like the French cookie. So A Wind in the Door is book two of the Time Quintet, which starts with A Wrinkle in Time, which is far and away the most famous book from the series. Yeah, most people know that book. Um, and I think after reading book two, it's easy to understand why A Wrinkle in Time is better known and more popular. Um, the concepts dealt with in this book are... Uh, difficult to visualize a lot of the time um, and there are certain scenes that are basically a mental exercise to envision as you're reading them yeah I, it was really cool this is also the oldest book that we've covered in our podcast so far yeah I I checked when someone said a phrase or something and I was like I don't like what is what era was this written in? And I flipped to the French. It's not like old English. No, but but you know, because people act a certain way in certain eras, and then children act a certain way in certain eras. Right. And then the people who write children's books when they are adults act a certain way with yeah. their characters in certain eras. And I was just trying to place it, but go ahead and tell the year. Well, this was written in 1973, um, and Madeline Langle, she was born in 1918. Wow. Yeah. Um, so it is the oldest book we've read. And I think that's interesting because it doesn't, to me, it didn't feel like it was that old. Um, the setting and the characters felt pretty modern. Obviously, the Murray family is a bunch of weirdos. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that helps. They're not going to speak or behave the way typical teenagers and children mm -hmm. and adults would. Um, they're incredibly precocious. It is pretty regressive. It's. I think the the characters in Madeline Langle's books are interesting, especially these in a book that was released in 1973, because I feel like there are these that opposing. Is 50 years ago. I know. It's pretty wild. There are these opposing forces of tradition and then like counterculture in uh -huh. a way. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about this more once we get into the specifics of the plot. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like that was a tension throughout mm -hmm. the book. Yeah. Okay, speaking of plot, let's not fall into the trap we so often do and just skip describing it. Because <laughs> um, this plot is, if you zoom way out and do bullet points, it's a fairly linear plot. Mm -hmm. It's just very intense uh esoteric no, i wouldn't say that because it's so universal the themes within i mean right but the things that they do like ex literally the things that they do are very difficult to explain but then yes. they're also simple to explain yes and part of the problem with explaining it is that the book is so insistent that size and place and time don't matter. Mm -hmm. um, and so in certain scenes, you are getting these dual depictions of events unfolding that aren't actually occurring 
concurrently. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another distinction between Madeline Langle's different sets of books because I don't know how many of them you're, you've read or how familiar you not, are with them, but there many. are a few different key families that she's written books about and their lives intersect in certain ways. Um, the primary difference is that the Murrays and then later the O'Keefe's, once Meg and Calvin have their own family, um, live in a time that Langle refers to as Kairos, which means technically it means God's time, but it also means like the right time or the time when something is ideally supposed to okay. happen. Mm-hmm. It's like the perfect moment. Okay. And then another family she writes about called the Austins live in Kronos, which is chronological time. Okay. Um, and you get that feel for the way that she is picturing time's flow and time passing throughout the book um, and the fact that she's playing with the way that things are happening and the way we expect them to mm-hmm. um, versus what she's trying to force us to imagine. Yeah. Um, do we want to read the yes. inside of the cover? Would you like to this time? Yes, I would. Um, so our edition has a great watercolor image on the front um, that's a stylized depiction of many of the major characters in the book. Mm -hmm. There's Charles Wallace um, laying down resting because he's very ill. In a depiction that really invites comparison to an Egyptian mummy. Yes. Yes. You're right. He does look a lot like the top of a sarcophagus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And above him is Proganowski's the cherubim student who Mm -hmm. they are learning alongside throughout the book there is a tear in the fabric of well it's actually a picture of mitochondria um if you look really closely but it also looks like a galaxy but then it has a tear in it which is also like kind of just flows into the depiction of pregonoski's wing it's Mm -hmm. very very good it's really beautiful i love this cover really lovely we will put it up on twitter i know you love when we describe images that's what this podcast is (laughs) all about Um, but check out at dragon babies pod to see our cover Um, and there's also an ectros on it Oh, I never. Or at least I, what I, I always imagined. To okay, be because you saw one that of picture. The, of okay, Troy. I what? Yeah, I really wasn't sure what that was supposed to represent. But also, it has Blagini. Yeah, on and Blagini is overseeing them all. Mm-hmm. Blagini is a difficult character in this book because he doesn't. He shows up to be a wise guide from time to time, mm-hmm. but he doesn't really ever make you care mm-hmm. about him. Yeah, he's, he's he's more of an overseeing yeah. force he's than a teacher. character. Okay. There are dragons in the twins' vegetable garden. Or there were. They've moved to the north pasture now. Dragons? (laughs) Not really, but an entity, a being far stranger than dragons. And its discovery by Charles Wallace, the youngest of the Murray children, is only the first step in an adventure which will lead him, along with his sister Meg and Calvin (laughs) O'Keefe, no description, (laughs) just Calvin O'Keefe, Out into galactic space and then into the unimaginably small world of a mitochondrion. A Wind in the Door is the second of Madeline Lingle's books about the Murray family, which include the Newbery Medal winner, A Wrinkle in Time, as well as A Swiftly Tilting Planet and Many Waters. Book sounds. (laughs) Um, It's a a good 
That's a good. Uh, it's a good description. They're trying description. to make it sound a little more action packed than it actually is. Right. But uh-huh. if the jacket just said, you know, the most thrilling sequence takes place in a visionless, dark, uh, liquid space in which no one is able to move, which is as small as the galaxy is large to you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't think they'd get as many. Yes. <laughs> It's it's hard. It's hard to describe exactly what happens, but that's one reason why I love this book so much. And when I was a child, it honestly brought out a new sort of spirituality in me. But I think that's because Madeline Langle believes deep down that religion and magic and science are kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's just my own interpretation. No, no, absolutely. Because uh, I can't remember. You know, I read some of her books when I was a lot younger, when I was religious, because I stopped being religious around the time I was 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. So it was I was still pretty young. Um, but then I was just kind of like, oh, whatever. And as I've gotten older, I really uh, sometimes I don't like it at all when there's an overtly religious bent in Mm -hmm. books that I'm reading where it's becomes obvious that the author is trying is believes these things and is putting them into the book and I'm like no please don't put your religion in the book in a way that you're like assuming that everyone believes in it the same way that you would reference evolution in a book and I would be like oh yeah like you know I, I know about that so anyways, I don't get that feeling from reading her books because yes. it is very much a part of this world that she's created. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also a big, I, I probably falls not close to her on the spectrum of seeing religion and science and magic as intertwined because I really look to science to explain everything and things that are unexplainable, including like, things that seem supernatural or you know just weird feelings we get from our instincts or some sort of you know pheromone entanglement or whatever like i or uh, the magnetic fields of different organisms like i just that stuff is all really cool and it does crazy stuff and you know a lot of it science isn't totally good on but religion or you know magic <laughs> I have their own way of explaining them um and i'm just excited for and making them more tangible yeah mm-hmm. and being able to describe them um relatable mm-hmm. i guess to the lay person mm-hmm. and i should clarify that I'm, i didn't mean to sound like i was saying that langle believed in magic because she was very specific about the fact that in writing for children, she worked very hard to go back to her childlike self and the way that she viewed the world so that she could enter that imagination space. Mm-hmm. Um, she actually had a very lonely, solitary childhood, and her teachers, because she was very shy, thought that she had like limited means of understanding what was going on or that she had a learning disability. Um, and she just changed schools over and over again. And it sounds like it was just very isolating. Mm. Um, and she has said that that's when she learned how to make believe and how to create these incredible worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, in talking about 
make-believe, which is a really important part of this book. That's mm-hmm. how characters end up communicating with each other. It's yeah. how they kithe with mm-hmm. one another, which is a word that Langle uses that I thought was that she created, but I guess is used elsewhere um, in like very old works, like in Chaucer, oh, wow. um, to talk about like a appearing in a place where you want to be so a kind of a similar meaning but kithing in this book involves the characters communicating with one another mentally okay um but it's also it's, it feels somewhat physical to me when i read this book and it did when i was a kid too it feels so intimate because you're entering another person's self yeah you're essentially sharing your own self and your essence with a person in order to communicate with them so it's mm-hmm. it is very intimate because it's incredibly honest it is. It's very like there's no subterfuge really with it. You have to really give wholly of yourself and receive that in return. And when Meg is having self doubts or when she's freaking out, everyone can hear it yeah. when they're mm-hmm. kithing in the mitochondrion. Yeah. Um, and that makes it all the more valuable because it allows them to pull her back, mm-hmm. her companions to say, "Stop! Don't yeah. go down that mm-hmm. road." Um. I did want to just quickly read a quote and then we'll explain the plot, delve into it a little bit further. Um, Madeline Lingle has a book called The Rock That Is Higher's Story is Truth that is about her own writing process and just storytelling in general. And she has a quote, if we limit ourselves to the possible and provable, we render ourselves incapable of change and growth. And that is something that should never end. If we limit ourselves to the age that we are and forget all the ages that we have been, we diminish our truth. And that's kind of a thesis for this book um, because it talks a lot about being adult versus being a child and the different capabilities that you have as you move further away from this childlike state of wonder and openness mm-hmm. to the world. Yeah. Whereas you compare that to someone like Mr. Jenkins, the grumpy embittered principal of their school that ends up going on their quest with them who has to work so hard to connect with other people Mm -hmm. and she really did a good job of picking because she needed to for the role the just least likable person for a child young teen you know of course their terrible principal figure of authority (laughs) doesn't understand the bullying that's going on doesn't care about the kids Mm -hmm. doesn't respect them for being individuals is just trying to force them into a mold and like is relatively so much older that they seem like a relic to the younger children Meg always mentions his dandruff on his shoulders that's like his primary defining characteristic I feel a connection to Mr. Jenkins over that it's hard Mr. Jenkins (laughs) dandruff talk um the thing about Mr. Jenkins is reading this book as a kid, I never really cared about him that much. And I was always like, oh, how can Meg learn to love him and connect with them? And rereading this today, I deeply connected with Mr. Jenkins. I felt really bad for him. Um, he is ex- an extremely sad character. Yeah. And he tries to sacrifice himself to mm-hmm. save them in the end. Yeah. And the he does these incredible acts throughout... I mean, not throughout the events of this book, but we learn about when Calvin was younger and his family couldn't afford to buy him a pair of shoes and he was wearing... His family is incredible. 
incredible. His family poor. is a nightmare. I mean, yeah, not because they're poor. His <laughs> father is abusive and his yeah. siblings are cruel. Yeah. Um his mother got the, him a pair of women's shoes and he cut them up and wore them to school. And Mr. Jenkins saw him doing that and bought a new pair of shoes for him, but scuffed them up to make them look like they were yeah. old so that Calvin mm-hmm. would take them and just said, oh, no, they were just lying around. Like, please take them. I have too many shoes. Which is truly incredible. Like, a, just an act that really shows it that resonates with you. you're a good person. That's something that can change your entire level. perception of someone, yeah. learning mm-hmm. about something like that. And the reason I, I bring up that they're very poor is not, like, that's not why Grace was saying they're terrible or anything. No. <laughs> it's just because when the book started out, I right away was like, oh, this this is about, about a bunch of rich people right. because I just immediately stereotyped everyone. I was like, oh, they're like they hang out at the White House and, you yeah. know, they're world renowned scientists. But, you know, it becomes clear that even the Murrays have really turned down a substantial mm-hmm. amount of wealth. They live a live relatively like modest life. Yeah, but they have a beautiful like farmhouse and estate right, in the yeah. countryside. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like New England. I mm-hmm. mean, it's never super clear where they live, but Madeline Lingle lived in Connecticut. So, well, so then I, I just assumed that anyone they would be hanging out with was also from a very mm-hmm. wealthy and prestigious family, but Calvin O'Keefe is not. Um, he's just from a a rural family that's been there for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the family does, they have a lot of, I mean, it's it's a really sad family to be a part of too. Like he talks about when he cried over the shoes that his mom bought him, his dad beat him. Mm-hmm. And as Calvin speaks more about his family life and other books, it's equally horrifying, but he does everything he can to just never be at home. And yeah. he's like an athletic star. Yeah, he's a star student he's and a, a star great athlete. student. Mm-hmm. Um, he's well liked by everyone. So he doesn't let anything about where he comes from hold him back, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so to talk about the plot a little bit further, because the book jacket doesn't doesn't really explain what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the same family from Wrinkle in Time, they're the some of the central characters of this book, although the events of Wrinkle in Time are mentioned in passing maybe once. You really don't need to have read it to get this book. No, I don't. I barely remember the other books at all. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. My brain Grace just, was just like, like <laughs> imagine a life without constantly thinking about a Wrinkle in Time. No, I mean, like, I've. I remember certain parts of it. I'm very not judging well. you. I'm more like thinking about how I could be different. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I'm, I have a Wrinkle in Time graphic novel downstairs. You should borrow it. Yeah, I it's absolutely amazing. will. I I remember. There's also a live action adaptation oh coming out this year with a mostly black cast. Oh, cool! Yeah, that's awesome. Cause oh, okay. Um, I read Many Waters a few times when I was right. a teen Many because there's sexy because there's hot boys on the <laughs> front. We've talked about this in another <laughs> episode. Mom just brought me Many Waters, my old copy from. I don't know if I could read it now. I think I'll be like a week ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, that's that's really great because I kind of the hot boys are Sandy and Dennis, the Murray twins, <laughs> who stink in this book. Oh, they're, they're just they're like really they're lame. different from the other characters. And the yeah. thing is, they have a lot of self consciousness about being different from the other family members mm-hmm. too. They you don't really get to know them until Many Waters. Mm-hmm. Um, in the other books, they just kind of show up as these like 
blocks of boy who mm-hmm. do what's needed and mm-hmm. kind of grumble around. Yeah, and while I was reading this, I sometimes thought like, oh, what if, like, what if I imagine that the Murray family is black because I, you know, I just assume that they're white because the author is white, so mm-hmm. she doesn't know about black culture yeah. or like black families or growing up black but I just like I don't know it it's not in a way written where I don't know they don't feel that much like a bunch of Whitey McWhitersons Mm -hmm. which is nice well there's also the added component of them being a minority of sorts because Mm -hmm. they they are so strange are very bizarre kind of social outcasts yes they absolutely are um and everyone refers to uh, their parents jobs but it's also clear that sometimes they're just confused by their parents Mm -hmm. as people yeah i mean the only other friend of their parents who's mentioned in the book is dr kalubra Mm -hmm. who is also a you know capital t teacher Mm -hmm. like one of the mysterious beings that helps guide a positive course for the universe Mm -hmm. um and then other than that it's you know animals Mm -hmm. yeah um there's yeah not a lot of socializing going on yeah calvin is is a family friend and meg's you know first love Mm -hmm. um but he is also a weirdo Mm -hmm. i mean and it's not it's not just that they're academically minded they the murrays spend their time thinking about deeper concepts very high concept things they don't really concern themselves with the mundane it actually except for sandy and dennis and it like frustrates them because they want more i know and they're so irritated they're like i'm gonna be a banker so i can provide for us all i can like (laughs) pay for all this crap that you people are doing um they do have a garden that produces a lot of produce that the family makes into spaghetti though yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like they're providing for the family exactly and they in a way yeah, that science does not <laughs> no it certainly does not and louise is their snake louise the larger yeah. uh-huh. um amazing pet name yeah. by the way and louise the just seems so chill when i was little i really wanted a snake <laughs> and sometimes i have still thought about getting a snake but um I have cats now, and that I think I chose cats cat over snakes. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that's permanent as a choice. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, should we keep trying to move through the plot? I don't know. There's I have let's, so much to say about this book. Okay, I can I can do the plot okay. briefly because I have, I mean, less attached to it yeah. than You're you. Not so. in as deep. Um, but I really I really did appreciate and love it. Um, Grace just has more emotional depth to it anyways so i guess he, see it's, <laughs> it starts out okay with we said that it's the murray family it starts out with from a wrinkle in time charles wallace is the youngest and he's that's the last thing i wanted to say on on the last point we were discussing grace is gonna take it away again yeah i'm so sorry <laughs> we talked about them all being precocious and the way that they approach the world they're supp- they're presented in a way where we're supposed to respect them and think of them as you know not necessarily perfect intellectuals. I mean they're all flawed characters, but they're supposed to be approachable. Mm-hmm. Like they're supposed to be likable. Uh, Charles Wallace for me verges on 
obnoxiousness um and always has even when i was a kid he's like too much of a child genius and he is he refuses not to be exactly he even though it kind of seems like he could he it's kind of seems like it's his um i don't know like his standards are such that he can't lower himself to not be talking about things that he knows are going to get him punched and not just like getting A's or something like that. I mean, they never even mention his academic performance because he's too young, I think, to even have letter grades. But to be bringing up advanced scientific concepts as something he's been thinking about it's over the summer. Right. It is kind of It's annoying. really annoying. Yeah. And Blagini tells him that his task is to learn to adapt. Mm-hmm. So even Blagini's um, like, you're like, annoying. Like, <laughs> relax. <laughs> like, you don't need to do this. You're right. Um, I I just yeah it, I I thought that it was funny rereading and thinking about that because I think Meg is supposed to be the character that's that has more flaws and is like self-deprecating and unsure and um, impatient and uh, yeah she's supposed to be the one that like pulls on us and makes us like oh Meg but <laughs> Charles Wallace really gets me yeah I and I think it's hard for me to not see him as. The creepy version of Charles Wallace from A Wrinkle in Time when he's being controlled by the evil brain, by it. Um, And he's like a little animatronic robot who is instructing everyone what to do in these very cold tones. Like that, it feels like a little of that is inside of him to me. I know Charles Wallace is supposed to be like a guiding light in the universe, and if he dies, it will tip the scales. (laughs) But Grace is not on board. I don't like him. Deal with it. Back to the plot. Grace is like, let's keep him alive, but shut him up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Charles Wallace says that he sees dragons, which I was really excited that it started out that way because I was like, oh, dragons. But they're not really dragons at all. It's just one entity, Cherubim, um, whose name is... Proganoskis. Proganoskis. And he has been sent. Um, Progo. As, we can just call him Progo. Yeah, let's go with Progo. Um, Progo has been sent as has the teacher Blagini, um, because they're all involved. And it's not really clear who does the sending or anything, no. but they all need to be together um, in Blagini's class. He's the teacher. Everyone else is a student um, in order to stop these really nasty creatures um, from... Uh, creatures, entities. The Ectroy. The Ectroy, yeah. I'll just call them Ectroy. Um, from essentially their antimatter in a way of that. I mean, I don't. I don't it's know a little complicated because they're pure hate, but they're also a vacuum. So they're like a force and an anti force. They I think are, it's a little. It's honestly a little contradictory. Right. And I think that I was thinking of them in the way that, like, you think of what like a nihilist and what nihilism they are nihilists i yeah, mean the messages meant, that come out by the end of the book yes classify they are nihilists, them that, like that way join us in the void mm-hmm. you know to we'll not, make you a prince of nothingness yeah, yeah exactly so yeah it is contradictory by its nature as mm-hmm. is nihilism but <laughs> nihilism <Ooh>. <laughs> you heard it here first <laughs> taking a strong political stance this episode um, and they need to stop the Ectroy from annihilating 
and it comes in a series of tasks. Um, Mr. Jenkins gets pulled in because the Ectroy uh, become copycat Mr. Jenkins and Meg's first task is that she has to pick which Mr. Jenkins is the right one. Um, She has to name him which is to like truly know the essence of a person. It it has to do with kiting kind of and Progo's job And you need to be named to exist. Yeah. Yeah. Progo's job previously was naming all of the stars um, because that's really important too. There's a lot of themes about like how important it is to truly know yourself and to have your name um, and as time progresses it's become clear that Charles Wallace is very sick um, it has to do with the Ferrandoli in his mitochondria um, and uh, very quickly Ferrandoli are fictional mitochondria are real yes. just wanted to put that's, that no, out that's a good point um, when I read it as a child I thought that Ferrandoli were um real i mean they're discussed that way and obviously there was a you know she created a visual for them they don't look did like you think little, like they were little mice no and no, little, no 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 oh, i thought I, but i thought that it was a personification of, of a real component a of a cell entity yeah. okay mm-hmm. um so after that then they go to a blagenese basically i call it like a, a blackboard location yeah. like it's you know like the place where you can or simulation chamber right <laughs> if you're gonna put it in te- it, it's technological called terms. metron ariston but it's not technological or you know it's it's in his mind like it's an idea and like everyone's I think there. Of it as like a planet that's outside of time yeah yeah it's just a space. staging yeah room it's like a stasis space um and that's where they go and they meet sporos uh who we is skipped mr jenkins no, I talked about Mr. Jenkins. Oh, Mr. Jenkins comes with them after Meg names him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Calvin O'Keefe comes too. <laughs> okay, the plot is less simple than I may have thought from I mean, afar. Yeah, it's like this episode is going to be kind of messy, but I I think I'll just leave yeah, it If you've as read is. the book, then you'll yeah, be. Yeah, hopefully you have, or else it's going to not be, be pretty, pretty confusing. Fun. Stop listening now. Oh, boy. <laughs> Grace. Really stop listening Struck now. Her mic. I hit my mic. <laughs> Um, um, but wait, continue. I'm sorry. I will trying so hard not to interrupt. No, I'm being awful. I'm really no, sorry. It's okay. Um, and so then, uh, Blagini tells them that they have to go into one of Charles Wallace's uh, mitochondrions. And mitochondria. Mitochondria. Yes. I'm sorry. So sorry. Uh, it, it there's this really. Okay, well, this is one of the topics I want to talk about, this world within worlds concept. Um, But because there's a lot of talk about how a galaxy is as big to a person as a person is to a Ferrandola. And it's that that old uh, tradition of, I think, explaining to children especially Mm -hmm. what your biology is really like and what a cellular level means mm-hmm. um, by yeah. bringing in the space comparison yeah. it's an easy visual yeah a good parallel uh-huh and they they go into this one of charles wallace's uh mitochondria and um remind me what it's called do you remember oh yada yada mm-hmm. um and in there they see that the ectroi are in there screwing around um trying to 
annihilate the Ferendoli by convincing them to kill the more evolved forms of the Ferendoli, which are the Farah. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they do that, then Charles Wallace will die, and he's the you know the balance keeping everything on the scale correct. So if he dies, then you know just horrible horrible things will happen. And they've managed to pull it off after Progo. Um, he annihilates himself, basically. X's yeah, himself. he X's himself uh, in order to keep the Ectroy from doing it and to like help them all win um, and escape. And because he knew it was necessary. And Progo's not gone because in the very last page of the book, there's a wind in the door yeah yeah which is pretty cool and he's classified by wind throughout Mm -hmm. the book yeah um great plot summary i'm so sorry for interrupting so many times it's kind of rambly but i was just trying to like get it all out (laughs) okay let's start with talking running downstairs and a few stuff (laughs) then you gotta wipe out (laughs) just turn into a little rolling ball and accumulate garbage as you fly down the stairs garbage not snow garbage <laughs> my my mental stairs are covered in garbage <laughs> now everyone knows it actually my reminds mental me mental stairs are covered in garbage <laughs> i'm gonna use that for now on new podcast <laughs> motto um it actually reminds me of a sleep tape i, I this ties into the book because it's about visualizing oh, it's a concepts. Weird sleep yeah. tape that I was afraid of. Yeah, it freaks me out. out. I had a little. I thought it was like some sort of alternate reality thing. <laughs> had a little cassette tape back when we used cassettes, and that my friend made for me, my friend Marlita, and it was supposed to be used for power naps because it talked you through falling into a deep sleep, and then like thirty minutes later was like, wake up. I mean, it didn't say that. That exactly, sounds really unpleasant. Grace. They guided you back out, um, and there are a few distinct, like, I don't know, spaces that you're supposed to visualize throughout it. And one is just walking down stairs, like many, many stairs. So I feel like that's my mental stairs. That's where I went to, and apparently they're covered in garbage. Grace <laughs> needs to do some some spring cleaning. So once you get once you get down the stairs, you're like in a beautiful field and like. A, I think it's technically a place that makes you happy. Anyway, <laughs> talking about Progo a little bit more because he is a very unique character. Yeah. Um, unlike, I think, any other characters or concepts we've covered so far on the podcast, with the exception of the last unicorn, which gets pretty metaphysical. Mm-hmm. Um, Progo is a cherubim. Cherubim. Uh, which is technically plural for cherub. So he is a group of cherubs, but is also a single entity. Um, Progo is a collection of wings and eyes and a lot of eyes. gusts of wind. Um, just this this formless, but very specifically formed piece of matter. And at one point, they're talking to Progo about what other cherubim look like. And he's like, you know, I didn't have any choice in this. Like when I matter, this is what I matter like. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just interesting to think about that being the form that, that these creatures 
take mm-hmm. um he compares it to meg having you know her mousy brown hair that she hates it's mm-hmm. like yeah this this is me deal yeah. with it mm-hmm. um i actually when i was doing a little research i saw a, an incredible discussion that i will link on our twitter i highly rec- recommend you check out um on the toast the recently oh. departed the toast um where a group of writers and academics talk through each book in the time quintet and the in the entry on a wind in the door one of them says that she pictured progo as the sassy gay friend the entire book <laughs> which is makes sense progo's always like huffy and irritated by what people are doing yeah and progo's always like um shut up like pay attention he's this idiot like five times (laughs) and in the beginning he is really irritated that he has to be paired with a human being i would be irritated too i would be too um and a a child you would be a child human being because humans are so limited in their understanding and when they have to kind of communicate it's really hard for him to first force meg to do it because she's trying to like keep him out Mm -hmm. and understandably i mean the concept of kiving like i mentioned it feels very intimate very close it's not something that i feel like i'd be super comfortable with i wouldn't Um, be into it no i'm a really internal person but internal in my own private way you know yeah i mean i just i mean it's not that i don't think there's value to be shared in like connecting with one another's thoughts but i don't really want to do that with anyone yeah i mean i think that we are similar in that it's very important for us to have our private space Mm -hmm. and sometimes that means in the physical world and sometimes that means in your head maybe it's because we're introverts that we feel this way yeah like it's just very necessary to feel healthy that there are certain things that are just for me and then especially they're not for particular people you know but it's that's just like an important thing yeah i agree um but progo is the dragon in Mm -hmm. this book or the series of dragons and i liked that there was you know even from the start when brogo's feathers and bits that he left behind um which lead charles wallace to say there's dragons out there um and also just the combination of like seeing a lot of wings and eyes Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah think of of dragons i like that it's a a kind of different view of what a dragon might be Mm -hmm. like very far away from the more traditional dragons that we've been dealing with so far and in all the dragons we've discussed this is the first time we hear the word for dragon droppings um few myths is that real is that a real thing i yeah i believe so okay yeah it's agreed upon few myths um mythology okay i wasn't sure um i think it is i didn't look it up before recording but i have in the past Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah so i think technically we still get a dragon appearance and progo reminds me of the personalities of some of the other dragons Mm -hmm. that we've covered yeah so give a give the dragon presence a check mark yeah yeah no i very much think so um i also found some pretty incredible fan art of progo oh um, really including because i don't think that the cup like the cover of the book does not show what i imagined progo to look like no me neither and Um, i realized 
immediately who that was supposed to be once he showed up and mm-hmm. I was like that's not how I see him no I agree it just looks like a, a lizard with a face that it, has it kind all of looks like it. a dragon yeah. but then with just a ton of eyes and wings around its head but nothing about it says that it has a body of a lizard no. so here I'm just I'm just gonna show you this really quick and I'll link it on our Twitter too um visual I found this insane video Okay, so I think that this is from um, Second Life. It's like an animation that someone made of Progo. um, And it's just a collection of moving eyes and wings in an art gallery. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty cool tunes. I mean, I'm kind of into this as a representation. I like it too. Yeah, I, I think it, it vibed with the, <laughs> with my understanding. We both started dancing, so I hope we you did. do we're, too. We're grooving, um, <laughs> especially because Progo's always his physicality is always described as a wing being tucked around Meg and an eye appearing in front of Meg's face he's or multiple fluid. eyes, depending yeah. on what he's communicating uh-huh. or what he's yeah what he's trying to say. Um, and I like that that becomes something that, I mean, Meg really depends on him and clings to him physically and mentally and finds Progo very soothing and important by the end of the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, Meg really loves yeah. Proganowski's, mm-hmm. um, which also brings me to a point I want to discuss about how love in this book is a very different sort of beast than it typically is. The way yeah. people talk about love and what love means, it's mm-hmm. platonic love. Yes, um, and it's very... But it also is like the platonic ideal right. of love. Yeah, it's still yeah. very intense mm-hmm. and kind of intimate, like consuming, but it's... I Yeah, I don't even... Well, but, and it is one of the two major forces in the book because the book is, its morality is very straightforward. Mm -hmm. Good and evil are clearly defined. And good is love and evil is hate. Yes. And the two forces, I mean, it honestly, sometimes I get, sometimes I thought of Harry Potter because there's (laughs) a lot of similarities in like, this figure is so good. This figure is so bad. Um, and one wants annihilation and one wants unity. Mm-hmm. Ektroi is the Greek word for enemies, oh, um, okay. which is also interesting because then that just, I mean, enemies doesn't necessarily mean someone bad. It means someone different from you, someone well, who's against you. But that depends on who's saying the word enemies. I know. Who's naming them enemies. I know. We could be the Ektroi to the Ektroi, you know? But I think that the people who named them that give up this thread. (laughs) (laughs) We're the forces of good. Oh, okay. (laughs) I wanted to let you finish. Um, Yeah, and when you love someone, you're able to name them. Mm -hmm. You're able to kithe with them. So love also creates being. Mm -hmm. I mean. And the concept of, uh, I don't know, thinking about naming and the fact that naming allows for empathy and allows for understanding Mm -hmm. actually made me kind of emotional while I was reading the book um, because I think that we're lacking a lot of naming right now. Mm -hmm. And it is that 
I mean, in our world, in our society. And it is that facelessness of the other Mm -hmm. that allows for people to commit heinous acts. It's really true. So speaking just a little bit more, you know, I love talking about evil. Um, on these driving forces within the plot um i thought that it was interesting that at one point when meg is confused as to why the ferrandoli are behaving the way that they are why they don't want to deepen and become pharah um that mr jenkins brings up ambition and he says that for some ambition is an end and an evil Mm. um and there's such a message of working toward the common good i mean throughout the entire book they are trying to join forces to save charles wallace but that's only happening because that will help save the universe from Mm -hmm. being x'd from a cosmic rip Mm -hmm. um and when you are x'd by an ectros you it's hard to puzzle through this um i'm thinking about the difference between xing yourself and being xed oh well i see it as i don't know i even thought it was kind of a message about um like euthanasia Euthanasia. yeah Mm -hmm. not straight up suicide not at all what i what i mean is euthanasia for someone who is terminally ill and whose quality of life is only going to continue steeply downwards Mm. from where they're at currently Mm -hmm. and they can choose to go instead of you know being in that place for longer yeah xing yourself is freedom from pain Mm -hmm. i mean freedom from reality and we have already touched on this a little bit but Madeline Langle was, she was very religious. She admired the works of C.S. Lewis, especially, Mm. who works a lot of um, Christianity into his work. I think that Langle believed that Xing yourself is like entering some kind of salvation because she believed she was a universalist. She believed that everyone would be saved Mm. upon death. And it's interesting because her books actually, even though they have all these Christian themes, they weren't Christian enough for a lot of Christian groups to like them. So they were like banned by some groups or picked against, but then they were too religious for oh some God. secular groups to like them. So I feel like she occupies this in-between space that a lot of people are frightened by. I think that's really silly. That it's extremely that's, silly, especially know, because her overall message is love and like eternal peace. So that's why I'm confused why secularists would have rejected her because it's not it's not a dogma in any way that you could say that it's trying to indoctrinate anyone. It's a very like yes, it draws very strongly on mm-hmm. um, themes from judeo-christian sources and terminologies and hierarchies and the sort of like heavenly beings and everything but it only takes the the really universally good parts from them and you know tries to give that as like an example or a theme like loving everyone you know working for the common good something that i 
really loved about reading this. I read pretty much this entire book in one day because I had a, a really busy week, but then I had a day where like I'd accomplished everything that I needed to at that point. So I read it. It really, in a lot of ways, is like a mind exercise because of things it asks you to, I can, I can barely even say visualize because mm -hmm. it's not even about visualizing. It's about feeling the things that it wants you to, that it's trying to convey to you and that it wants you to take in and understand are like it felt almost like a mindfulness exercise in some yes. ways um it was meditative but also very um you know productive in that it's not like you're waiting for things to come to you you had to take an active role mm -hmm. in it um and i I really loved it as a thought exercise and the way that it forced you to think about scale and time mm -hmm. and meaning of, and placement. It was just very, very interesting. And I, I kind of, it was really a, a mind opening exercise. I agree. And I think that it's valuable no matter what age you're at, because obviously the book is aimed at children slash young adults um and it breaks down both macro and micro concepts and makes them navigable for kids mm -hmm. um but it does that without ever making like a child reader or any reader feel like they're being patronized or talked down yeah, to no, not at all um, this is a, and everything is tinged with magic and mysticism yeah. um, so it also makes science exciting mm -hmm, and yeah. thrilling it's really true um I, I actually referred to this book um to myself as the thinking man's version of the magic school bus episode where they go inside arnold's body <laughs> oh my gosh i did think about that because i I anytime there's a you know I watched an Archer episode a couple months ago where they get shrunk down and put into a yeah. scientist and I was like it's oh, always it's like fun magic school yeah bus. like going inside <laughs> somebody's body to fix them from within because yeah, that was the first iteration of that that I'd ever I think it kind of makes us more comfortable with the mysteries of illness and internal disease because medicine is still so unknown in so many different specific ways like there's so many fields where it's like okay we figured out that this works but we don't really know why Grace, grace's really boyfriend is finishing up med school right now so i myself but grace much more so have really been receiving a lot of like real nitty-gritty about yeah. how medicine works how things work yeah. and how much of it is just a, a work. pick and hope for the best yeah. yeah um but going inside a body physically makes us it puts us in control we have authority over what's going on and you can like right punch some bacteria in the face <laughs> And you know what? That feels that feels great to be able to think. Now that I'm it thinking could of Rick like and Morty that. too. No, totally. And whenever I am on like an antibiotic, or even if I'm sick and just spending the day in bed, I literally am visualizing my white blood cells mm. punching yeah. the intruders. Know. <laughs> you know, it's pleasing no matter your age. Yeah, be it yeah. a child or an adult. To imagine that it is that tangible because it's really frightening to be sick to have like something yeah. that you have you feel like you have no control over and it's in the body and you know it could have really devastating consequences especially in this form that the illness takes for charles wallace where he 
slowly and then very quickly loses his energy, mm-hmm. his ability to even breathe because he can't. Yeah. He has no strength. He has nothing. Another comparison, um, although it's not quite the same, we're not going inside a body, but the book overall reminded me of Horton Here's a Who. Oh, yeah. Um, and I saw when I was doing research that reminded some other people of it too. Um, because it's the same concept of gaining empathy for a being because you can like identify them and understand what yeah. their lives oh, are like. That's a very good connection to naming. Right, too, exactly. Empathy. Huh. Yeah, but also playing with like the big and small yeah. and uh, just the dynamics of relationships between gigantic things and very very tiny things and how they rely on one another yeah definitely so uh, we've had a pretty freewheeling discussion but a few segments we haven't covered and you know what i want to talk about the food (laughs) i can't even see her notes but like i'm like oh my gosh we haven't talked about any segments grace wants to talk about the food And I didn't even write down the food that shows up because there's really just one part of the book in which there is food. It's not spread out the way it yeah, is in it's most just a fantasy. Um, but that's because this is also, you know, more of a science fiction like book than a fantasy book. It's science fantasy. Where they're detached from their corporeal They're not forms, using their bodies. So they really no. just are not interested in yeah, food. Yeah, they're floating formless <laughs> in space. Um, yes. So I always like... Madeline Langle's food work, her food writing. Made me want spaghetti. That spaghetti sounded real good. It was made with garden vegetables from Sandy and Dennis's garden. Um, oh, a quick side note. My whole life I've been like calling them Sandy and Denny's um, because his name is spelled... <laughs> Denny's? His name is spelled D-E. N-N-Y-S and I've only seen D-E-N-N-I-S a la Dennis the Menace and reading it this time I immediately just pronounced it Dennis in my head and was like what is wrong with you (laughs) it's been a while since I've read um, anything other than Wrinkle in Time Mm -hmm. so yeah that was one fun moment of realization Um, it's with peppers and onions from the garden and it's made garlic with garlic it's made quickly um as a last minute dinner but it sounds so nourishing and comforting and just the scenes of the family coming together um the description of making the hot cocoa Mm -hmm. in mrs murray's lab um, while they sit together and talk about what's going on and like comfort one another and try to figure out what's happening Mm -hmm. um because we didn't mention this but mrs murray recently discovered Ferrandoli yeah. that they that they exist because before um, she just postulated them right and so it's very alarming to her that she thinks there is a connection between this recent discovery and her son's mysterious mm-hmm. illness yeah um, so she's very stressed out and spending a lot of time in the lab mm-hmm. um, and I don't know there were t- tinges of remembering like having a working mom and yeah, like at definitely. night everyone coming together mm-hmm. um, and yeah I, I love that that hot cocoa hi mom shout out <laughs> <laughs> My mom is a wonderful listener to the podcast. Hi, mom. Um, and the the cocoa was just yeah immensely comforting. I actually we haven't mentioned this, but it's so funny that 
yesterday Madeline and I in passing were just like oh yeah we, we finished we both finished the book like ready mm-hmm. to record tomorrow and pretty much at the same time I said it's so comforting and Madeline said it's so terrifying yeah I was I was really like oh okay that's not in the list of top 10 words I would use to describe this book but and I can't okay. tell if that's just my own nostalgia because mm-hmm. like I said this book pretty much formed my worldview in terms of understanding how I felt about the universe and its inhabitants and yeah. the way that they interact with one another um, and my own belief that science is my religion. Mm-hmm. Well, I also feel that way, but then I also just this book really hit hard with how very, very fragile life is. And I know that the book presents this ordered way that the universe is, but then it also is very chaotic and like teetering on the brink and you know i know this book is written in the 70s because she talks about how much like hate and crime there is um because there was a crime wave in the 70s but you know you could really blame the entire thing on manipulations by our political leaders Mm -hmm. in order to protect the privileged and put it on the non-privileged but anyways i you know right away it's like oh that really resonates with me because yes this is a very scary time mm-hmm. um for me and also to a further extent others so it, it and just the way that it presented everything that goes on is just really it's scary it's really it's, i'm sorry go ahead no because i don't know if even i can verbalize what i'm trying to get at well so. there's also in this book a stratification between uh, rural and urban uh, populations and environments um they say a few times like these kinds of things happen in the cities but they Mm -hmm. haven't been happening out here which i totally thought that must have to do with the era right exactly because that was a big rhetoric yeah and that's also just it's just a kind of old-fashioned way now to just yeah to -hmm. describe what's happening exactly it's an old rhetoric and i think that paired with I, I didn't end up expanding on this, so I will now. When I was talking about tradition versus counterculture, it made me think of the um, Ferrandoli uh, trying to do something new. Oh, there's a cat <laughs> playing with the podcasting equipment. Um, <laughs> trying to <laughs> accomplish something new, and they don't want to deepen. They don't want to follow what their ancestors have been doing like they want to run around and fling their little bodies at things and have like orgies of delight uh, within their mitochondria are being like crappy college students like self-interested wealthy dancing their little booties stupid self-involved college students of which i was was one so like you know i understand wanting to be in that place um but it's not good for the universe but even though these concepts the way that she approaches the concepts at least can feel dated sometimes um it's still applicable Mm -hmm. and i still feel i mean obviously we're still fighting against evil we've got a lot very different kind of evil going on now than in the 70s Mm -hmm. i mean it's impossible to even compare the two um, because of the rise of the internet since that time um, but I did ultimately still find this book comforting. Yeah, I mean, in ways I did as well. I It also just scared me because of the massive concepts that it deals with, which are 
which are frightening. You know, part of the way that I retain my sanity and all humans do is by ignoring the fact that we are so, so cosmically unimportant and so at the whims of the universe and chaos and chance. You know, that's mm -hmm. really, really frightening. And also as a world population doing our best to heighten that chaos right. and worsen our chances of long-term survival on this right. planet. We're not exactly taking the problems by the reins. So, you know, being very forcefully reminded of that is is scary, especially because I'm not in the sciences um, at all. I'm in law school. I had a, a Russian degree from a liberal arts school. Like I, I have, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about uh, cosmic science. Mm. <laughs> so to be reminded of it is is just, you know, it's it's wonderful and it's very important, but it's also just kind of scary. I think that's where it really comes from. I guess I have a lot of personal death fear, just like the inability to cope with infinity. And books like this actually make me feel better mm. um, because they present me with an alternative that is at least temporarily soothing, even if it's not exactly a balm on my late night anxieties. <laughs> um, it does accomplish some temporary relief. So we delved pretty far, um, just away from food, I would say. <laughs> we mentioned it and then we got into... La well, last food, foodish, foodie, badoodoo, oh, I, I want to say. to say about it too, so. Madeline Langle mentions liverwurst sandwiches in many of her books, and I've never had a liverwurst sandwich. Liverwurst and cream cheese, liverwurst specifically. Liverwurst pate. Yeah. It's so good. Oh, I know. Um, but I, I haven't had that kind of sandwich before. I don't and, think I have either, um, and I want one. I'm intrigued. Uh, I love that there's such a specific but repetitive snack choice yeah. that the Murrays mm -hmm. are predisposed to. Um, and the part about the spaghetti reminded me of you and Josiah Grace because Sandy or Denise <laughs> says that uh, she didn't put enough hot peppers in and it's not spicy enough. And Often when uh, I go to Grace and Josiah's for dinner and see them cooking together, Josiah is trying really hard to spice everything up, and Grace is sometimes physically restraining his hand as he attempts Puts to in cayenne. spice and spice and spice. Yeah, I mean, over the course of our relationship, we've managed to level one another out. Yeah. With regards to spiciness, but one of the first sometimes times we have guests over and they're like, "This food is too spicy." This was a long time ago, but one of the first times I had a meal with Grace and Josiah um, in the modern era after college, um, they made amazing burgers, but there were literally tears streaming down my face because the burgers were so <laughs> spicy. I think that was just pepper too. Just Josiah was like, "What's wrong with you?" And I was like, it hurts. What's wrong with you? That's what Josiah sounds like. Okay, <laughs> closing the book on food, I do want to mention Badass Lady Meter. We haven't talked about Meg a lot. She is far and away the protagonist of the book. Yeah. Um, everything is from her point of view. Uh, it's third person, omniscient narrator. Um, Meg is... a great character she's pretty straightforwardly a 
um, you know, rebellious in that she's rebellious against like societal norms, not against her family. No, their um, family is very close. But she uh, feels that she knows what is right, and most of the time she does. Um, but she is extremely headstrong and impatient. She's always like, uh, does this have to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and she she takes on these tasks that require a lot of courage um, because she's working to save family members. I mean, it's the same in Wrinkle in Time mm-hmm. where she's going to get her dad back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Wind in the North, it's more directly Charles Polis's body that she's saving. Um, but I, Meg does also represent some atypical, you know, female characteristics like being really talented at math, mm-hmm. um, and being very independent. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, goes off on her own when she needs to, even if it, whether it's you know walking miles to go to Charles Wallace's school to confront his principal because that. she like at the is very not beginning down with the, the book, way the other adults are handling things. When she's ta- she's like, I have to go. Or like when I did go see him, and then it starts off like she sneaks into the building and hides in the closet, and I was like, <laughs> waits for what's hours. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, because she this is not what got I there so early <laughs> before Mr. Jenkins had come in, um, and then. She is instrumental in, I mean, everyone works together to convince Sporos to deepen Mm -hmm. and to, I mean, once they get into the mitochondrian, like everything hits the fan. Yeah. It's hard not to swear sometimes. Um, But everyone makes it out except for Progo, who, you know, has been pretty resigned to his yeah, fate from, from the, the start beginning. yeah he was always ready to do what was necessary um i i'm impressed by meg she's young too she is a teenage girl i like how many teenage female protagonists we've had in recent books we've covered and i was gonna say um in terms of you know a lot of the books we've done are people discovering things like getting pushed into the new world where they're going to be the protagonist and coming into their abilities or reality or realizations. And I would say on the scale of how difficult the things that are new and um, the protagonist is forced to conceive of and understand and be confronted with, I think Meg is all the way down at the end of the spectrum of the Mm -hmm. difficulty of the concepts that she's being exposed to. And she does a very good job. Like sometimes she has resistance to them, but I never does she think like, I just wish she could go back to like before all this was real and I knew about it, you know, that is never the case. The only time she expresses a sentiment similar to that is when she tells Progo, well, I don't care if I accomplish this task, if it means that like you're going to X yourself. Right. Which is different because she was. Yeah. I mean, because Meg comments often and this is really pulls at the heartstrings pulls at the heartstrings um how difficult it is to be a human and have feelings because Mm -hmm. progo says again and again like wow i can't believe that you are approaching this this way this (laughs) seems really uh unreliable and irritating to have emotions and meg is sometimes a bit of a slave to her emotions but she loves everyone so deeply and she's the one who is a conduit to mr jenkins Mm -hmm. and makes him into a sympathetic character Mm -hmm. um, because she 
learns of her love for him and is able to put that into communication with him and helping him understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. Because without Mr. Jenkins, they wouldn't have succeeded. Yeah, no, it's true. He, he was drew very, off he was the Ectros mm -hmm. or the Ectroy Mr. Jenkins because there are a few of them. Yeah, um, and they enter his body, which must be. I, I can't even it's imagine because it when, happens multiple times to it. When Meg describes the pain of being touched by an Ectros, um, it's you know inconceivable. It reminded me in Harry Potter of the. I forget the name of the curse, but the incantation is Crucio. <laughs> yeah, the Cruciatus curse. Yeah, the torture mm -hmm. curse. Yes. So overall, I think Meg is a very active protagonist. She always follows what is right and true. And that's really impressive. And you're absolutely right. She doesn't have a moment where she withdraws and mm -hmm. second guesses what she ha knows she has to do, which most heroes do, mm -hmm. especially yeah. in fantasy novels where yeah. there's like some big dark quest ahead and mm -hmm. they know that they have to complete some kind of she sacrifice to she win. She doesn't why me. No, no, she never, she never does. Yeah. Um, she, you know, she complains about her appearance a lot, but honestly, outside of that, which is like standard teenage stuff. Yeah. Um, and just talking about how much more beautiful her mom is than she yeah. is. It's just sad. It's really sad. Meg comes into her own as she gets older. We can't all have flowing curly hair. Or no, russet hair, auburn hair. I can't remember how she describes her mom's hair. but Dark red. I'm just laughing because Madeline has uh, luscious curls and I have stick straight hair. No, uh, your hair is very nice, Grace. It's fine. I don't need compliments. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what I'm looking for. Okay. So my rating for Meg is a Ferrandola who has decided to deepen, but has not quite started. That's great. Yeah, that's a good rating. I don't. I didn't think of anything beautiful like that. So we'll just leave it with yours. <laughs> I agree. Okay, we haven't discussed um my, cat is my knee me. is just being chewed and chomped to bits right now his name is pippin his name is pippin yeah we called him pippin a few times um okay i think let's just wrap it up there are a few segments we didn't cover but this is already going to be a really long episode <laughs> because i was just so excited yeah, this um, is, i mean there's just this is such a discussion worthy book yeah and i mean i recommend getting someone in your life to read it and talk about it with you because like you really you need to read this book if you haven't it's it's really spectacular and it's very worthwhile uh for the reason that i brought up earlier that it's very like it's a mental exercise it's it's good for you it is and we haven't even yeah keep those brain cells working you need them right now mm -hmm. we haven't even discussed the poetry of Madeline Langle's writing mm -hmm. and the sections that are just they're just straight poems, poems yeah. um, because there's not another way to describe the events that are taking place. Um, I, I mean, the fine some of the final passages in the book are just so gorgeous. Um, and, you know, it's a much more abstract version or a much more modern version, I should say, of this Tolkienian mm -hmm. straight up just verses of poem or song. You know, mm -hmm. instead of saying like, and then they, you know, sang this song and they, they actually put that in the text in verse. It's instead the writing just suddenly turns into it, a poem to describe what's happening. Yeah. yeah. Which makes a lot of sense when you're describing um, fighting uh, uh, nameless evil and convincing 
a infinitely tiny creature to root and become a sea tree mm-hmm. that can communicate with planets and distant I did, galaxies. I did have, I had some fun moments imagining if I were a filmmaker, how I would make an adaptation oh. of this book. <laughs> I think I would use a lot of animation, like real life actors for the people but then and just straight like line work animation hmm. for a lot of the other things that would happen it would be pretty trippy yeah yeah no yeah, one's gonna would. ever finance that project <laughs> it's want, fun to think you about want millions of dollars to do a sci-fi fantasy kids book uh about mitochondria <laughs> oh yeah okay that's crisis <laughs> you know it um so thank you for joining us for this discussion. Yeah. If you would like to share your thoughts on A Wind in the Door or Madeline Langle or dragons or anything else, you can get in touch with us on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com or send us a DM on Twitter at dragonbabiespod. We are also now on Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast. Madeline, you created it. Oh my God. It's Dragon Babies podcast. Yeah. Um, so hit us up there if you want to see some pictures of books and cats. Um, anything you'd like to add, Madeline? No, I just what I've already said. Do you have a discussion question for our listeners? <laughs> <laughs> Madeline's just like, um, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> what do you think that? parental I look like what's your depiction perfect because I want to share some of the fan art that I found yeah. on Twitter yeah, that's right Grace asked me an unexpected question but I, I had returned. an answer I returned. served it right back Oof. that's the sound a ball makes when you boof yeah we're athletes boof. as you can tell <laughs> oh boof <laughs> all right so I think that's all for this week so I'm Grace and I'm Madeline and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. It was supposed to be until next time. <laughs> we will see you until next time. <laughs> Goodbye. Until next time. If you'd like to learn more about Dragon Babies, you can find us online at dragonbabiespodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at dragonbabiespod. That's P-O-D, the first syllable of podcast. Songs used in this episode are Pippin the Hunchback and Batched Villagers, both by Kevin McLeod and licensed under the Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. You can find his music at incompetech.com. Thanks for listening.